Hello and welcome to Dream Nation. I'm your host, Yulia, and thank you so much for downloading this episode. I sit down today with Betty Halbreich. She's a personal shopper at Bergdorf Goodman, and she's funny and brilliant, and she's incredible. She's so brilliant that she memorized all the questions that I was going to ask her, and she basically conducted her own interview. That's how on top of it she is. I love her very, very, very much, and I hope you enjoy the interview as much as I did. She gives you a lot of insight into women, fashion, life, basically a lot of insight into life. And um, this podcast was brought to you by Fundreamer, which is a global crowdfunding platform for social good. Our mission is to unite the whole entire world behind people's dreams. We want to change the world and create our own economy, one that is supported by women and diversity groups. Anybody is welcome to join, to create an account, to support. And our whole entire mission is to create social impact. So go check out Fundreamer, set up an account, create your dream or donate to somebody else's dream. Enjoy the show. What are you doing? I'm thinking about what you're saying, and I'm also thinking about where I'm going to sit. Well, you can pull up any chair, or you can pull up a, um, maybe that chair? I don't know. Is that a better chair? This is great. This is perfect. This is just a podcast. I have no idea what a podcast is. It's a radio show. Oh, radio is my big thing. I love radio, too. I listen to NPR all day and all night. I love NPR. I love Brian Lair. Podcasts are the new radio, so you just set up a little channel and you have people isn't, tune in. Isn't that, so you get a list of people who yeah. follow you? Well, this seems to be the big thing, is it not? It's really great. People love it. So I'm talking about funding women and diversity. So I talk about everything, right? Well, sure. That's like, the whole thing. You can't stick to one thing. I think it gets very boring. Right? And if I talk about diversity, I'm like, I can talk to No, I think it anything. gets terribly boring. I mean, I think if you're going to sit and talk about fashion all day, how much fashion can you talk about? Fashion gets boring. Everything gets boring. you got to jump around. Well, no, but fashion. Right, right. I started out in fashion. I wanted to be a fashion designer back in 99. Um, that was my dream. Yeah, well, every all a lot of a lot of you young people have a dream, not always in the right direction. So true. So Betty, okay, so I'm gonna introduce you for my podcast, and what I wrote so far is um, correct me. I haven't started taping yet. Yeah. Um, but I'm gonna introduce you as how do you pronounce your last name? Halbreich. Halbreich. Like it's half rich in German. Got it. Hal, but I do it. Some Hal. people call it Hall, but I say Hal. Hal. It's Midwestern. Right. Versus, but my husband pronounced it Halbrush. 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 Yeah. I'm here with Betty Halbrush, who heads up the personal shopping office at Bergdorf Goodman's. It's called Solutions by Betty Halbrush. She's a New York Times bestselling author. Her book, I'll Drink to That, A Life in Style with a Twist, is out right now in Penguin Press. And she also has a second book titled Secrets of a Fashion Therapist. Betty's been helping New Yorkers dress for a long time. 41. For 41 years, and today we sit down and we talk style. Is that all we're going to talk is style? Oh, no. We're not going to talk <laughs> politics. We're not going to talk what I did when I was a child, where I came from. We're going to talk style. Well, everything, gonna... everything leads to style, I guess. We're going to ease into it. So my first question that I ask all my guests is, what was your dream as a kid? Well, you're going to faint. There were two things I wanted to do. I wanted to be an artist, and I took art lessons. I'm from Chicago, Illinois. I took 
Saturday classes at the Art Institute of Chicago and sat up in the balcony every Saturday as a little girl and as a teenager. I thought I really wanted to be a cartoonist. But my second love was land, dirt, soil. I like to grow things. And when I was a little girl in primary school, they wrote a little squib about everybody, and my squib read, I was going to be a farmerette. And that still holds. You know, I love things that grow. Um, I'm pretty good at growing things on the windowsill because I don't have a plot. But I've always been good with, with I like my hands in dirt. Not soil, dirt. So that's, that's what I thought I was going to do in life. Um, but I married and came to New York and landed here in my 41st year. Nobody can believe that anybody stays in a job 41 years. You either have to be stupid or use it in my 89th year as a destination point of where to go every day. Uh, I think there are a lot of people, I get a lot of mail from not exactly my age group, either the very young or the very old. And it gives them sort of a fine feeling to know that someone still works at my age, I mean, without being wheeled in or crawling in every day. I do, I am mobile. You're very mobile. I'm very, very mobile well. and um, blessed. So that, that's basically what the early, the early beginnings, I came to New York and I came to New York in the late 40s, right after World War II, if anybody remembers World War II. And I was scared to death of New York. Even the, the, I couldn't get over the manhole covers that were smoking and I couldn't get over the tall building. Now Chicago is not a very small provincial town. But this kind of struck me as a very cold, unwelcoming city at that time. I had a hard time. What was it like after World War II? It was very, very difficult. It was very hard to find anywhere to live. Uh, you had to know somebody who know some, knew somebody to give you a key to an apartment. I lived over on the west side. I'd never seen so much traffic in tall buildings in my life. In those days, 55th and 6th Avenue had all small brownstone. There were very few tall buildings like today. The grocery store was across the street. Today it's a huge monster building. So I had a hard time. I had my first child there and I couldn't wheel the carriage to get her to the park. I couldn't get around the buses. The traffic doesn't stop for you in New York, like where I come from, came from. I keep saying come from, came from. And, um, and then I moved to the, I, I'm a creature of habit. I moved to an apartment 67 years ago and I'm still in the same apartment. And that's a record for the landlord and for me. So um, I, I don't move very much. I've been here 41 years in the apartment, 67 years. I didn't keep my men that long. I did keep where I lived, though. So um, I, I, I know your next question is going to be, how do I get into fashion? The one wonderful thing that's always happened, I mean, I've had illnesses that I've managed to come back from. But the one thing I've never had to do is look for a job. I've always had someone say to me, 
would you like to come to work for me? And many, many years ago, that's how I got into this, I was at a cocktail party. And at that time in this city, there were a family by the name of Parnes. And they owned, I say that owned, designers. And one of their designers was a man by the name of Chester Weinberg, whom is gone down, nobody remembers him anymore. He was a very fine designer. Someday someone's gonna do something about him, a book. And I said, sure. Now, I don't know how to add or use a computer. How was I gonna to go to work? Like an idiot, I went to work, I went to the showroom, and I, I can sell clothes, and I can show them, but I can't ring them up. I can't do anything next. If I see a cash register or anything that has to do with mathematics, I turn ballistic. I mean, I don't know whether it's stupid or something that was just left out in me. So I worked for Eddie Parnes, oh, maybe four months when he said to me one day, Betty, I think I have to bring somebody else in. You can stay. And they brought a young woman from Italy and my friend Maria, we're still friends, it's 40 odd years ago. And she was very good at pushing and computing and whatever, and still is. And I lottie dot around. Um, I, when I left, there, I, and I did leave, because I didn't work in the summers. And that was a no-no. My husband took me out to the country. I was at another cocktail party, and I met another man I knew from way back, and he said to me that he was opening a new line for Jeffrey Bean. I love Jeffrey Bean clothes. And he said, would you come and run the department again? Idiot. Sure, knowing full well. I did say to him, when we sat down for a proper conference, I really don't add. I can't add. I can't add up. I can't go above twelve. And he brought together a wonderful department for Jeffrey Bean. Rather than couture, it was a lower echelon of clothing called Bean Bag and Mr. Bean. And I was in the Mr. Bean department and Saks used to come in. It was a very big success. Beanbag was sportswear. And we never called Jeffrey for all the years I worked for him, on and off, Jeffrey. He was always Mr. Bean. Um, I worked for him, and when I subsequently separated from my husband and other things happened, uh, I worked for Oscar for one season, but I tripped over the dresses. They were, I couldn't carry them. And I, that was very seasonal. And a friend of mine, an acquaintance that I had met many years ago, was coming to Bergdorf Goodman with a man by the name of Mr. Niemark, Ira Niemark. And they were gonna rebuild Bergdorf's from a store the people were, it was sort of standoffish. Everyone thought you'd have to be very, very rich and have a chauffeur and drive up and the doorman would take you and escort you. And they wanted to bring it back into a new century, which they did. Don Mello, Chester Weinberg, and my friend, uh, uh, Irony Mark, Corinne Coombe, who brought me in, and Don Mello, who was the fashion director. So when I came to Bergdorf Goodman to be interviewed, I had to be interviewed. Mr. Goodman was still here. 
another man was still here. I had four interviews, and the, finally the last interview said to me, what are we going to do with you? I said, I don't know, you asked me to come here. So they put me downstairs, and they at that time were bringing in a Jeffrey Bean department, and I sold the clothes very well and gave all of my sales away because I wouldn't work a register. So a year later, Mr. Neemark said to me, what are we going to do with you? We don't have any sales record of you. We know you sell, but you don't. I said, give me a personal shopping office. Try me. Had not having a clue to what a personal shopping office was. They said, all right, but we're going to test you. And they tested me with the head of CBS, Bay Paley. And I walked in, and I had to sell her clothes. Do you know who Bay Paley is? You look her up. She was one of the most extraordinarily beautiful women. They were a group of sisters, and she was married to the head of CBS, CBS or NBC. Anyway, I passed, and I got this office you're sitting in. So that's, this office had been here 40-odd years. The one reason I stayed, it has a window. So I can look out and see the weather. I can see normal, sort of normal people walking up and down. Not so normal. I see a lot. I've seen thefts. I've seen everybody in white jeans, which I abhor in the summer. I've seen people wave at me. Some people call me up and they're over at the plaza and we wave at each other. Um, it's been a, an extremely wonderful run, but you have to have a sense of humor with it or it'll kill you. I think that's life, right? You need to have a sense of humor. Well, you definitely it. have to. You have to know every one-liner that you've ever wanted to pull out of the back of your head, from your heart, from your brain, from your mind, everywhere, because otherwise it'll kill you. Selling is not easy, and you have to do it with some sort of an attitude of ha let's have a good time. You really don't have to buy it, but enjoy it if you do, and let's, let's be honest about it. There's a lot of dishonesty. That's the next step to selling. You know, a lot of these ladies are commission women, and they have to pay their rents and live from day to day on this sort of thing. And the one thing I said to them when I came here, I made the only smart deal I ever made in my life is, I will work for you, but only for a salary. And that's 40 plus years ago. And I think I'm the only one in the store is salaried, which gives you the freedom of, of being able to be, I hate to use the word honest, but it has something to do with honesty that you feel that you really sell with honesty, that you think that someone looks good in something. Look, none of us want someone to go home, put whatever they bought on, face their own mirror and say, what in God's name did I do today? And wrap it up and return it. That's on my record. No, it's an open door policy. You don't, you, you, nobody's pushing you to come to Betty Halbright. You really don't have to come here. You come here when you want to and enjoy it. I mean, I think people like, or in a, say, a state of depression or a state of just getting off of something 
bad, like a divorce or a bad relationship, a lot of buying is feel good. It should make you feel good. I mean, you should look in that mirror and say, I really like myself again, again. I mean, yes. that's, that's my feeling about it, but that's very, I'm very psychological about selling. I've had a lot of psychiatry. Um, well, fashion is very psychological, right? And that's why, that's why I think that makes you such a great writer because you're able to get insight into a person. You're able to, re you're a mirror in a weird way. Well, you, when you're my age, you've lived a lot of lives. I mean, I can't say to you that I'm just sitting here being who I was 10 years, 20, 30, 40. How many people work in the same chair 40 years? Either they're crazy or, in my case, I have been productive. I have been productive. It changed my life. You know, it made me more secure because I wasn't the most secure human being. I was an only child. I'm an only child too. Well, there's a protective <laughs> feeling about being an only child. Yes. My mother used to threaten me with a little brother or a sister if I was misbehaving. She would say, if you're misbehaving, you're gonna get. Wow. Oh, my mother <laughs> said she, and my mother tried to have more children and never could. But there is something about the insular feeling of being an only child. Mm -hmm. You have to make your own playtime. You have to, I remember playing with dolls in my dollhouse and straightening and doing and whatever, but by myself. I've always had good friends, you know, that were lifetime friends, and that's never been a problem. So that I, for many years, was very dependent upon relationships with other women you know, when I was separated from my husband or when things were that way, I don't have that anymore. I don't, I, I, I gave that up. So, uh, and I didn't want to give this my whole life. I, I have a full social life. The interesting thing is most people don't understand that most of my friends are gone. They're gone. Very few, one out of all the people I knew. But they all had children. And their children are in their 60s. They're my children's age. They took me up and they became my friend. But there's a fine line. We don't talk about the old days. We don't talk about their parents. We talk about today. Right. Isn't that interesting? And now that, I, that we're talking about it, but we don't say, do you remember when we did or whatever or when you were little? Never. Right. We talk about what's going to happen tonight, tomorrow, and a week from now. So it, it's became a whole, it's a phenomenon, actually. I don't it know anybody, you know. So the people, there are so many lonely people in the world. Now, I don't have a chance to be lonely. I'm in a store. Filled with people. I mean, filled. So I can go out there and maybe see someone I know just peripherally. But I'm always surrounded by people. Now, I don't know how good I'd be sitting home looking out the window. And New York can be very isolating, too, because in a weird way, you could be surrounded by people, but it's such a big city. But this gets Well, I always felt that way about it. Some people say you can just do anything. You can always go out to dinner alone here. You can go over to a Starbucks. You, can do, you, can, you don't need people here. But that's the trouble. You don't need people here. You don't need people. 
people. It can but be lonely. It can be lonely, but not the same loneliness that I felt when I moved out to LA last year because I started my company out in LA. And I felt a new level of loneliness. I won't even talk about it, but I talked to other people about it who've been to LA. And LA, just, you're very isolated. It's insular. It's very insular. And you just, people are far away and. Driving. Driving. Driving makes you isolated. And there's something, and I couldn't wait to get back to New York. I was like, I need to get back to New York. I don't mind living in LA, but like if I have a family, that's fine. But I've heard other people say that about the distances are long. It was, you don't walk. Here you can walk off every pain and ache you ever had. I mean, you can go out of your door and walk. And you walk to a restaurant, you walk to a clothing store, you walk to a museum. There isn't anything. And it's it's a contained area. It's, It's an incredible city, I guess. But it can be lonely. It can be very lonely. You have to be lonely in order to write. I'm gonna segue this into your writing, no. Right? I had I've I've written since I'm a kid. I I'm, I was one of those kids of children that kept a diary. Same with me. I've had a diary since fourth grade. You still keep it? I do. I stopped oh, good for you. When I got married for um, a, a long time, like ten years, because everything was so new and everything was so busy, I stopped, and um, I started writing again. Um, oh, you should never give it. And once you've done that, that's no. incredible. I know. I look at everything from fourth grade because I moved here from Russia. So that was the only way I could, I couldn't speak English. So I just had a little journal where I just like journaled all my little thoughts. And then it turned into journaling while I was in high school, journaling while I was in college. See, I keep telling my granddaughter who's now in, in the Peace Corps in Africa, she should be keeping she a should. diary. Yes. It's fascinating. I look back on, it helps me analyze my life. I look back and I flip through pages and I go, oh my God, is I really upset over that? <laughs> I don't know, you know that, that's very interesting you'd say that because I don't know if I wrote all that, if I'd ever have the nerve to read it. Oh, you know what? I wrote myself a time capsule when I was 15 to open up when I'm 35 and I have to dig and find it somewhere in my mom's house because I'm turning 38. So. Of course I'm late to find my own time capsule, that makes sense. No, I've, I've never sat and read the book. Yeah. I've, I've never, never read the book. never read the book. It's a great book, I've been reading it. I wrote it on legal pad. I have the whole book on our yellow legal pad in the cupboard. And um, I, I write free, free form, free in the hand. Mm-hmm. And I really write my thoughts and I don't believe in going back and rereading. I'm not, you know, I'm not professorial, and I don't want to make it academic, and it, I just wanted it to be free off the top of my head, whatever came into my mind, and that's what I did. I think that's what it is. Half of it is just like putting it out there, like it, like exercising it, letting it go as soon as you put it. Well, it's gone. very important to do that for me, for me. So what else do you uh, want to know, so, my God, from my old life? Oh, gosh. Oh, so much. I don't have favorite designers. I know. I just read that, actually, this morning. So I was like, you know what? There goes my question. I really don't. Jeffrey Bean was the closest I came to it because I really thought the man was a genius. Mm-hmm. I mean, if he'd been an artist, he would have been a very fine artist. I mean, he made clothes that were absolutely superb. I, I never knew Norman Norell. But that was the same sort of, it was the workmanship as well as the artist that was doing it. So it's, it's, uh, 
to watch what he did in his studio and the fabrics he mm -hmm. had behind the door were just that it just it doesn't exist today and it rarely existed then you see so it wasn't that much different then but it wouldn't exist today i mean you just don't have you don't have it you don't have it anymore. it's so funny because i often say that some of the dresses i show mr bean would have used as lining he wouldn't even have made them into a dress I say that very often. It's so true. So um, he was the ex luxurious, extravagant, almost couturier, you know. So my next question, I have two more. Uh, what advice do you have for people who want to step up their style? Or actually, re trying to rethink this a little bit maybe. Um, People come in because they want to reinvent themselves, right? They need an uplift. People come in with all kinds of reasons. People come in because they're getting married. People come in because they're getting divorced. People come in because they've been sick and now they're well. People come in because they, yes, want to reinvent themselves. No one can reinvent themselves in clothing. They only can reinvent themselves in their head. And when they reinvent themselves in their head, then they can dress themselves. It's all very psychological. Nobody needs, nobody needs all of the clothing. You need a coat, you need a sweater, you need a bit of underwear, you don't even need something to sleep in anymore. And maybe you need a, two pairs of shoes. But you don't need all that we amass today. I mean, it, it's, it's, a, it's a feel good experience buying and it's wonderful don't misunderstand me if it makes you feel good for the moment take it and run with it you also I mean not in my world anymore but I did live in the world where I looked at what everybody wore and if we went out for dinner and those days we dressed and if I didn't have something new on and a new handbag and a piece of jewelry and then and my friend did I turned green with envy but those were the days where Saturday night you got dressed. You couldn't go to these places, the little club, El Morocco, 21. You couldn't go unless you were dressed. You didn't go from work. And women didn't work then like women they work, work now. Huh. I mean, they did. Always, women have always worked, but they didn't work like they do now. You know, they have families and children, and they didn't. That's a whole different discussion altogether. Yes, that's this a, is a, something that's evolved. That's a whole entire discussion. And this is what the, the papers write up. The women don't hold high positions and they're not paid as much. I don't know. I read the New York Times every day. I think women are doing pretty well. I know we should not differentiate them from men, but we have, yeah. and we have done that. But Hewlett Packard, I, all these women that are huge executives today, Lots no one's keeping them out of a job. Yeah, we're doing well, but we're still getting paid less than the men, even though we're doing the same position. So it's like, in a weird way, we still have come such a long way, but they still manage to pay us 22 cents well, less on the dollar. I liken it to Europe, you know, like they running a woman for president, they thought that was the most, nobody, we never had a woman for president, right. but other countries have. Yes, other countries have helped. Where does insurance. that leave us? 
you know? So I think we have to do a little evaluation about who we are and what we are. And uh, I have great faith in this country. I really do. I've seen it through many different phases. And I do have the, I know we always pull together and come back. We all, we seem, it seems to me, we always go down almost to the bottom of a pit and then we really pull ourselves up. And I saw that during World War II. That's true, and it's also in life, right? Sometimes you have to- It is in life, but here we're encompassing a whole nation. And at the moment, we have to pull ourselves up and think differently. And that's why some people buy clothes. But I'll tell you something. At this time, it's the first time in my 40-odd years of working that I've seen people say, I don't really need it. Interesting. It's the first time that I have felt that they don't have, I need it, I want it, and it'll make me feel good. They've turned off. They've turned off. They've gone into some other mode of thinking, which I think in a way isn't so bad, it will come back. But if you're really thinking about something else, maybe more fulfilling than putting a dress on you that you hang in the closet and maybe visit once a month. So that's my theory, but you know, that's simplistic. Or maybe they just have more of stuff because they just accumulate. Well, they'll tell you that, but that never stopped people from buying or even walking through the stores, Mm -hmm. even touching it without buying it. And they sort of backed off right now. Interesting. Yes, they backed off from it, from from the luxury, whatever. Uh, that's my analysis. So, what would you say if somebody wants to step up their style? What is like the one thing that somebody should have if they want to look dressy? Like, what is your one tiny bit of fashion advice to the world? I my fashion advice is very individualistic. I can't I I can't give you a broad answer to that. The answer is to the individual. Because a lot of the times I stop them from what they want because they pipe a dream. I'd like a yellow and blue dress to wear to a wedding. Wonderful, I think you should have it. Where are you going to find it? I mean, some of the requests are so, they're pipe dreams. And I fall into the trap very often. But more so than not, I'll go out and find something completely different. Now, not to say I don't always make it. I don't always hit. I don't. Because after a while, I give up, and I don't want to waste their time. Right. So I say either come back, or I'll give them a list of other places to go. You know, I I don't want to bat out, and I rarely do. But if I don't have it, I can't manufacture it out of paper for them for the moment they're here. Great. That's also good life advice. So my final question is, what is your dream as an adult? I think my dream is, was to grow up and to be a little bit more humble and have a good sense of humor. And that happened around when I was in my 50s. It took a long time, didn't it? That I didn't have to look behind and think someone was following me. 
you know, or that I envy. I got rid of all the envy. I mean, it's completely gone. Maybe working at Bergdorf's Goodman squelched all of that. But uh, I hope it didn't come too late. I don't think it did. And uh, I'm a good listener, as was my mother. And I think if you're a good listener, you can learn an awful lot. And that way you give back a lot. So there's a lot of uh, more to just selling. I, I, maybe you're talking to me thinking that I was going to speak more about fashion, but that's really not who I am. I'm a reader. Um, I like to cook. I like to clean. I never take this job home with me. Thank you, Lord. And that's who I am. Simple. Betty, I love you. Thank you so much for doing this. That podcast. was fun. That was It fun. could go on. It's like going to the therapist. I know. It's like I just sit here. and It's I absolutely just, the therapy session. I love this therapy session, and thank you so much again. For oh, me. you're an adorable person now. You should get married. <laughs> Thanks for tuning into the show. I hope you enjoyed it. Please share it on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Dream Nation Love. It's not Dream Nation podcast, it's Dream Nation love because I think my single mission in life is to teach people how to love a little bit more and together we can save the world. So it's Dream Nation love, share it with your friends, have a great day and go out and make the world a better place.